This is a Radio.com original. Have you ever sold a car or something happened to a car and you always thought to yourself, I want to someday get that car back? It's kind of like the one that got away that you want. <laughs> that happened to me this year at Bonneville. <laughs> there, was, there was a racer out there that came to my pits and one of uh, you I had used to own a car that, that he had. Uh, of course I did. And I said, I'm sorry I ever sold it. Do you want to sell it? I bank wired him the money for it yesterday. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story from celebrities to car personalities and others in the car industry and more i'm randy cardoon after last week's podcast where we dealt really with the tragic news of the late jesse combs and her high-speed crash on a dry lake bed in oregon hot rod bob beck joins me to talk about his visit the week before to the bonneville speed week in utah where high speeds are commonplace and we also get a chance to talk with the Mississippi Mensch himself, George Poteet. Where did the nickname Mississippi Mensch come from, and is he a Mensch on the bench? Does he know Judy Dench? Yeah, I know. He's a Mensch with a wrench. First, let's go to Hot Rod Bob. Bob, how was your first visit to the Salt Flats? I, it was an amazing experience. Unfortunately, the rain had come in on Thursday, and we got there on Saturday. Things were still kind of wet. Uh, cars couldn't run, uh, but we were... We were waiting for our team to get there. Our team got there late as well, so we didn't set up till Monday morning. Uh, got to see a lot of great things out there. Got to see people that i would known from all over the country that just showed up for this event, and uh, it, it was an experience that you can't believe. And uh, kind of like uh, George Fatigue, I got invited up there, kind of hesitant to go, and now my wife and I are making plans to go back in October. Because it's just, it's so different from anything else you can get involved with, with cars. Watching the cars that did run, they had, where we were pitted normally would have been, been about the halfway point on the long course. Instead, it was the finish line. And uh, it, it was quite interesting seeing the cars go past us. Uh, one car, uh, 244 miles an hour backwards. And that was uh, an interesting thing to watch. And we were... We're hoping he kept it rubber side down and shiny side up, which he did, and uh, th that was all good. But uh, the cars that we did get to see were just amazing to watch, and it it's just a totally different experience. You've got to go. Did I understand you correctly? You just said 224 miles an hour backwards? No, actually, it was 244 miles an hour backwards. Oh, pardon me. I guess I must have messed yeah. that up. Well, we now it sounds yeah. completely normal. Of course it is. Yeah, it was 19, <laughs> 1934 Ford Roadster, and John Beck, who no relation, had been uh, he built the motor for the car. It, it was capable of 300 miles an hour is what what they were going shooting for, and it it we heard the pedal come on, pedal off. He was pedaling it, trying to get control, didn't do it, and he spun about five times right in front of us, uh, going through the finish line backwards. Ah. I was going to say, that'd be a completely different record going from start to finish 200 and some odd miles an hour backward. That, that... Yeah. I, I don't know if that counted as a backup run in a main run, because he was going in both directions. 
Ah, good point. Hey, a guy who knows backup runs and forward runs, I think he knows forward runs much better, is George Petit. And George, he drove Speed Demon. He still does during Speed Week. George, you uh, are joining us now from your palatial uh, location out in Tennessee. George, tell me a little bit about your run, 332 miles an hour in Speed Demon. Well, we had... uh... We went out there with a little bit higher expectations than that. We were running a 258 cubic inch engine for that particular pass, and uh, the record we were running to was uh, 348. And uh, of course, we were running on a four mile course, so we didn't really have much of a chance of, of getting the record in four miles, where the record was set on a five mile course. And then it was wet and really uh, loose and really rough. So uh, we, uh, Saturday morning, or Tuesday morning, Saturday when we both started, Tuesday morning we were able to run a 332 with a 300, uh, 258 cubic inch engine. Wow. Now, I watched that run, and it, the car was just amazing. And I've loved that car since I first saw it. Uh, it was actually on display here in Ventura, California, uh, right before uh, you went up to Bonneville in 2014. And... That was it's such a beautiful car and it's so different than anything else that shows up on the salt. Well, we we crashed a car out there in, in thirteen, so this is a, yeah. a car we built over the winter of fourteen and uh this is the third year we run the car, so uh we've been fairly successful with it. We've we've set uh more than one four hundred record with it so far. So uh we went out there uh with a new engine program this year we had a 555 cubic inch big block to run but uh, monday when we were able to get out on the course and look at the conditions of it we decided not to run the big block Uh, we changed to the small block that afternoon in the pits and we were ready tuesday morning to to run with a a smaller engine because we didn't feel like the course would hold as much torque as, as the big block was giving us you have driven over 400 miles an hour. What's that like? Well, things happen pretty quickly at 400. <laughs> you don't have a lot of time to react. And actually, our biggest speeds out there, we're going uh, two-second quarter miles. So if you happen to get off course or head off course, you, you don't have a long time to decide what to do. So it, it's... Uh, a little bit uh, scary sometimes when you you're trying to work, you know, the accelerator, the uh, gear shift, the tack light, the parachute stopping, and, and uh, you're doing about seven different things at the same time. You don't have a lot of time to think about it. Wasn't it like 451 miles an hour, something like that? Uh, yeah, we made a pass out there last year, a measured mile of 452, and we had an exit speed of 465 last year with a, a 443 cubic inch engine. That's you know, that's just wow, Bob. Yeah, that, that's amazing. A great Baskerville talked you into going up for the first time. And <laughs> uh, an old dad just... He brought you up there. What was the convincing factor when you got there that uh, made you want to come back and, and build the Blowfish, which is a phenomenal car in itself? Well, Gray uh, Gray was, uh, of course, a hero of all of the early hot rodders back in the 60s. He was he was a hero both 
you know, from a magazine standpoint and what he drove and what he drove every day to work. He, he drove a 32 Roadster all his life. And uh, that's what we all wished for back in the 60s. So when I had a chance to, to ride along with Bray on a hot rod power tour back in the early 90s, he, uh, you know, he's always talking about bottom on something I read about since the 60s out there and uh, something I always wanted to see. And of course, you, you get out there and see it a couple of years, you decide you may want to do this. <laughs> so uh, I uh, bought a car in the starting line out there, the first car I ran out there, a 120-mile-an-hour roadster, and uh, up, up, up a little bit every year to where, you know, we're, where we are now, a pretty fast car. George, I'm curious. Let's go back a little bit to find out kind of your past as far as how did you as a youngster get interested in cars? What did your parents drive? What was your first car? Well, I was born in North Mississippi, and we had to work on cars to to have a way to go back then. Uh, when I was growing up to high school, I drove a 53 Dodge four-door flathead six car. <laughs> and uh, the first car I ever purchased was a in 1965, I purchased a 61 Ford uh, convertible, so I still have that car. Really? <laughs> and, wow. Uh, yeah. I uh, was 61 Ford. There was one of my neighbors drag raced one on the local drag strip down there in, in Fulton, Mississippi, and I always loved those cars. I had an opportunity to buy a, a convertible for one of my neighbors, and there's a 292 automatic, and it it was really, really slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but from what I understand, it's not slow anymore. <laughs> so I, I bought it and drove it to high school a couple of years and then uh, uh, willed it to my sister when I got married, and she drove it to high school one year. <laughs> well, she was probably the slowest slash fastest driver there. <laughs> I drove very slow cars back when I was in high school. Uh-huh. I completely get that. Of course, some to think of it, I think the LAPD probably has a few uh, one-outs for um, APBs for me trying to find out where I drove. But that's another story. We've all had those issues, he said, as crickets came up. Yeah, so, yeah. So right. Te- well, right, you know, of course. You, 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 get, you got your ET slips from the few. Yeah, I, I do, which is scary. But that's another thing. So, George... I I normally ask people, um, what about the cars in your garage? But you have quite a collection. How did you get in to start collecting these wheels? And what are some of your favorites? Well, I love 61 through 63 Fords. And uh, I uh, probably probably got 75 cars sitting in different stages right now. I've got a farm in Mississippi that I've got 13 buildings down there with finished cars, project cars, uh, cars we're working on. And um, we, uh, I don't know, I started buying cars when I was in 1965 when I was a junior in high school, and uh, I never sold a whole lot. And I, I would uh, buy a car, restore it, and sell it, and buy two cars, and I'd sell one of them, and, and, and buy three cars and restore them, and sell one of them until... I handed up with more cars than I need, I can tell you that. <laughs> I saw some of the pictures. Uh, you have a 1,000-acre compound is what it's what they're calling it. You have something like 120 cars. I did notice you have a 1957 Pontiac Catalina. 
got a 57 chieftain chieftain excuse me that was catalina that was catalina before catalina yes yeah yeah i like pontiacs i like the old nascar back then the 57 fords and the blackwood of chevrolet and the old 57 pontiac fireball roberts was always one of our heroes driving a pontiac back then Bob has this video that he posted to um, his Facebook page and social media and stuff about, what was it, Bob, the Daytona 500 where everybody was driving uh, time trials, but a lot of them were convertibles. Yeah, they used to, they had a convertible. Uh, they let convertibles run. I remember my favorite convertible to watch back in that day was the Thunderbirds. Because they, they could actually run NASCAR. And the 58 to 60 uh, Thunderbird convertible was kind of neat for me to see on a NASCAR track. I believe 58 was the last year that they did convertibles, and Ford were Thunderbirds. Uh-huh. Uh, I, they, uh, uh, 56, they, had, uh, they ran the Fairlanes, and then uh, I don't think they ran a convertible in 57, but in 58, they ran 58 Thunderbirds. was a real boxy, ugly car in NASCAR. Yep. Yeah, and I was just wondering, at the time they ran that, did you think that was really a smart idea to run the uh, convertibles as opposed to... Uh, the hard tops and all that, or was there really no difference as far as how you saw it? Well, the convertibles were had a stronger f- frame underneath them. They didn't flex as much, and uh, they were uh, uh, easier to build a roll cage and everything in, easier to get in and out of if you had a crash or something. But I don't think there was a weight uh, advantage in them because the, the chassis was a lot heavier than, than a, uh, a post car, but... Uh, I really don't know why they decided to run convertibles back then, but uh, I, I always loved the, the convertibles back then. And, you know, I've got a 56 convertible now. I don't have a Thunderbird convertible, though. I, should they start uh, running uh, races for NASCAR? I mean, NASCAR now and NASCAR then is obviously something completely different. But would NASCAR ever make any sense now to do it on a beach? Well, you know, I'm from where NASCAR started over here in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee and where they were running liquor in cars back then. But uh, it's totally different now. And, you know, I've, I've always admired the, the old cars, the, the 63 Galaxy, the uh, uh, 61 Pontiac were always really bad. And, of course, the Hemis came along in, in 60, 66 and 67. But... Uh, NASCAR has always been a, a favorite of people like me because it was close to us, and we could actually see those cars on a weekly basis on a, you know, a dirt track somewhere close to where we live. Yeah, so, go ahead, Bob. When you started uh, running at Bonneville, you you started with the Roasters, but then you t- talked with Troy from Tro- Red Rods, and you built a Barracuda that is just amazing. What made you go with the Barracuda and the four-cylinder? Well, I was running a 32 Roadster out there then, and we, uh, Troy and I had teamed up and built a uh, 54 Plymouth with a Dodge Viper running gear under it called a Sniper. Oh, wow. Uh, it, it's out in the Peterson Museum right now. But uh, we worked with Chrysler on one of their pony cars that was an untitled car that they, they kind of, gave us permission to remove some of the parts from it. And uh, uh, we put everything on the, the 54 Plymouth from a, a new Dodge Viper back when they were first year of the production of them. 
except the quarter panels and the roof. <laughs> yeah. We had to take that back to them. <laughs> but uh, we were working with Chrysler on that, and uh, they uh, let it be known that they had a, a four-cylinder Mopar engine that, you know, that they would probably donate to a project. And it's actually a little aluminum block, 180 cubic inch uh, USAC midget block. But the thing accepted one 426 Hemi head. So it was actually a Hemi head four-cylinder. And uh, the reason we built the Barracuda is I, I had a buddy here in Memphis who was a bottom all racer that gave me a 68 Barracuda. <laughs> he had one sitting in his backyard. And uh, we put a four-cylinder in that thing. And uh, we we set an elf record in that with that car that's still out there. It's a, a 255 miles an hour with a 140 uh, 180 cubic inch engine. How do you get a four cylinder to get up to over 250 miles an hour? Well, you use a turbocharger to start with, which uh, wasn't used uh, um, widely in model 10, 12, 15 years ago. We were actually the you know, real successful with turbocharged cars. But uh, we uh, we just, Kenny Duttweiler, who builds engines out in California, is a uh, turbo uh, fanatic and, and actually the best in the world at building turbo engines. And uh, he's the one that builds my engines now for the, the speed demon. But we ran a 122-cubic-inch Ecotec motor in the in the uh, the earliest uh, speed demon that I crashed, uh, I, I've got a re- still have a record at the bottom of it for 326 miles an hour, 122 cubic inch. We took the four-cylinder out of Barracuda and put it in the, the speed demon, as you know it today, and set a uh, 356 record with, with that engine. And we actually had it up to 390 miles an hour one time on an FIA course. But you do it with a, a lot of air, a lot of uh, fuel, and a real good coil pack. So you got to have air, fuel, and fire. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, yeah. then, you have to, then you have to worry about keeping the heads on them. And that was one of the, the, the secrets of that little Mopar engine, that, that Hemi head would uh, had good head gaskets, and uh, they would stay on. Uh, we we blew up a bunch of Ecotec engines, and, and the little 180-cubic-inch uh, Hemi head motor was just you know, real strong. The crank was good in them. The head gaskets, you hardly ever blew a head gasket on them. And uh, you run them with about uh, 24, 25 pounds of boost, and put fuel in there and put a coil pack on top of each cylinder and you get about oh, 1,400 horsepower out of them. That's pretty wow. wild. That is wild. George Petit is joining us here on Talking About Cars. Hot Rod Bob also on the hotline here, or the Talking About Cars hotline in the lovely Talking About Cars studio. And I'm Randy Cardoon, of course. George, earlier you were talking about crashing back in 2013. How fast were you going when that happened? Uh, we were actually testing uh, out there on a wet course at, at the, cor- the FIA meet where we were trying to run. It had been rained out. And we were just uh, <clears throat> doing some test runs, and I, uh, the, I have a GPS speedometer in the car, and it showed 370 when I got upside down with it. Uh, I spun out in sixth gear. It just spun out from underneath me. At 370 uh, miles an hour. 
370. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I, that's, I, a, that's a testament to the safety equipment. <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't. I mean, it wasn't that big a deal when it happened. I mean, it didn't scare me anything. I realized early that it was going around, and I, I tried to get my parachute open and didn't get it open, but uh, I, I flew upside down 550 feet and landed on the roof, and wow. that absorbed most of the energy, so uh, it it rolled several times, but it never went end over end like a lot of the cars go out there when they mm-hmm. crash. Uh, it was all rolling, barrel rolling, so... I just sat there and waited for it to stop and took the steering wheel off and crawled out when it stopped and was standing there when they got to me to, to pick me up. So when it stopped, was there any of the, you know, is my arm still there, is my body still there, that kind of thing, make sure you're okay? <laughs> well, I fell to myself and I said, I'm okay. I got out. <laughs> now, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at pictures of the chassis right now, and the technology you used was amazing. You had two almost inline front tires. Well, we run uh, the front tires uh, almost in line with one another, uh, uh, just in case you have a blowout with one of them. One of the tires goes flat. You don't lose control of the front of the car. Normally, if you have a you know tire failure, it'll drop down and, and start flipping on you. Uh, but we run that type of tire one for the safety of issue of not losing control. If you lose a tire, and number two, it 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 makes the, the front frontal area of the car very small, you know, like a jet airplane, and it has very good uh, downforce and 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 not very much drag up there with a, a, a narrow front end like that. Yeah, your your car comes to a pencil point. It's 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 beautiful in motion as well. I mean, it's beautiful standing still. But when I saw it running on uh, Tuesday, I was just amazed at how, how what it sounded like and and how it looked going down the salt. Now you made if, if memory serves you, you pulled off on the second run. Was there an oh. issue with the car? The second run, we, we, we run that 258 cubic inch engine, and we had some uh, turbocharger problem. We, we were running 88-millimeter turbos and trying to run uh, 55 pounds of boost in that little engine, and uh, the, the turbos uh, didn't work as, as they are designed to work because of the cubic inches that, that, that was trying to force air through, and it kept... Uh, cutting the turbos off and cutting them back in. So uh, okay. the second pass, we uh, ended up going like 299, but it was a uh, – got out of it off the course and three and a half. But uh, we determined from this year, the first year we ran it, that 258 cubic inch engine, that we need smaller turbos. We, we you know, can get 50-pound of boost out of some uh, smaller turbos, some uh, 78s or 82s millimeters and uh we we learned some things out there this year about the small engine we actually took the small engine out uh, actually had a, a drop the valve which landed on top of the piston which uh turned the piston sideways and we broke a connecting rod and and as kenny stated it it put windows in the oil pan <laughs> and you you could see all the way through both sides of the oil pan or a rock hate it when that happens <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we ended we ended up putting the big engine back in it 
it was one of those deals that uh, we're gonna go whatever it'll do. <laughs> so I ended up making a three sixty nine pass out there on Thursday with a, a five hundred fifty five cubic inch engine, and it was really a, a really nice run. We we were set real pleased with the way the engine performed and the way the car handled on such a rough course. Uh, it was so rough we didn't get traction. We stayed on traction control so much that we didn't get a lot of speed out of it. But we feel like we've got some pretty good potential with, with the big engine in that car if we get a decent course to run on. Bob, you and I were talking earlier about uh, the condition of the salt flats, and there was a question of how good it was. What do you remember from the condition of the salt flats when you were there? Uh, we, well, judging by the potholes, I wasn't out on track. Uh, I never got to see the groomed track. Uh, we watched the cars go, but in the pit areas and uh, even up to uh, registration and such, there were holes, potholes, and water puddling and such, and the salt was very wet. I know uh, two car washes later, I finally got the salt off my rental car. Oh, wait a minute, did I say that? And we're not supposed to take rental cars out there, but... Um, it took pressure washing to get the salt off because it stuck. It was so wet, it was flinging up on the cars. Uh, the first night in Wendover, uh, they have a cruise night, uh, kind of a car show impromptu at one of the hotels. And the cars that were out there were covered in salt. And one of my friends from Colorado was down there, and he's driving a 29 Roadster. And his shirt would stand up by itself. It had so much salt on it that hardened and would have dried. Your cardiologist, by the way, told you to cut back on salt, so I hope uh, yeah, I you take his... I did, and I stood by a car that was running on nitro, so I don't need the pills anymore. Ah, there you go. Okay, well, very good. Uh, George, what did you see out there? I mean, the condition of the salt flats. Well, the, the salt was absolutely perfect last year, and this year it, it, it rained a lot during the, the winter months out there. And the, the saw was actually covered in water for a month longer than normal out there. And then it rained so much last winter that the water table was so high. Normally, uh, the, the saw will absorb a little rain like we had out there Thursday, but the water table was so high, it, it, it wouldn't go down through the salt. It, and then the afternoons, it actually came up. The sun draws it up because the water was so close to the bottom of the salt that the course was actually wetter in the afternoon after 100-degree days than it was in the morning when we went out there. But uh, it uh, it was uh, a combination of too much rain last winter, and uh, it came that little rain Thursday, and uh, it was really, really wet when SCTA was trying to prepare the course, and uh, they did all they could do to make it smooth, but nature didn't help us nothing much this year. And uh, it will, um, the salt is fine other than it just rained too much to have a good course this year. Hmm. Are you are you going to try and go back in October and run when they do their finals? Well, it depends on if it smooths out a little bit. Uh, the salt will actually grow in the next month out there. It'll, it'll get thicker and hopefully it'll fill up some of the potholes that we're driving through and It'll dry up to where they can use some light drags on it and smooth it out there. There's actually two more events out there this year. The USFRA, a group from Salt Lake City, has a meet out there middle of September. And then two weeks later, SCTA has what they call the World's Final. So we're monitoring how how smooth it, it uh, makes itself between now and then. But 
Uh, we left there with three engines still running, so we're ready to go back right now. We we cleaned the car up this week. Like I say, it's got a lot of salt all over it, but uh, we'll get it cleaned up this week. And uh, we've got the big block in it now. We'll probably pull the heads off of it and just look at the the, uh, pistons and the valves. But it doesn't require a lot of maintenance. We we could be out there in the next 10 days if they said we got a course to run on. So uh, we want to run again this year if if the salt goes out a little far. Bob, you were talking about the group you were with. Uh, I believe they're from England, and and they, yeah. the saga of them getting a car there and then having all these issues. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, they decided to update the motor, go and do a little update on the car. Well, one thing led to another, and it became a dominoes effect. They started at the front of the car, worked their way to the back. They ended up having to stretch the car two feet just to handle the fuel tank, because now with the bigger engine they were planning on running. It needed 45 gallons of fuel, according to the engine builder. So that caused the back end to be stretched. Well, once you, that, you stretch that, you had to add some extra racing. And there were so many bars on that chassis, they ended up adding. I was kidding him. I told him if he has one more bar, the canary will never get out of the cage. <laughs> so they they kept going at it. Uh, John Beck built the motor. It's a billet Brad Anderson uh, Hemi, and it was fresh. It They didn't fire it up until Wednesday for the first time. And they fired it up in the morning on alcohol. It was a nitro-burning motor. Uh, they checked everything out, shut it down, checked everything, re, you know, redid everything they needed to check. Check came through, checked the car. We made some corrections to it. They fired it up again later that day on alcohol just to make sure. And then the first fire-up on nitro was on Thursday. But they still hadn't passed check for the corrections that they required. So their first day on the salt was on Friday. They got in line. They got up there uh, pretty far and then realized it wasn't coming out of neutral. So they couldn't make the run. But we were still putting the car together Tuesday. And the guys from Race Pack, uh, heads off to them. They, They did an amazing job. And we had people from all over the world. We had a gentleman, Silky, out of New Zealand with his son, uh, Corey, were working on the car night and day when it was down in the shop at Mick's Paint. Now, Mick, I believe, is from Australia. He was up there. Uh, The car had been repainted, powder-coated, you name it. There was nothing left untouched. But getting the car back together was the big issue. And we had 10, 15 people working on it at any one time. Uh, Wednesday, I was still helping fit the body panels. Because with the new engine, it was a double mag Hemi, the body no longer fit. So we had to trim away body pieces. Uh, it, it was just an amazing effort uh, of international proportions. We had someone from just about every country there working on the car. And it never got in. Well, it did It did get in. It just didn't get, a didn't run. get down the track because he couldn't get it out of neutral. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they were checking it. I know when it went through tech. They were hitting the the air shifter on it, and it was shifting. And it, it just, you know, Murphy's Law, uh, and, and that's racing. And they got up to they got up into uh, staging and couldn't get it out of neutral. George, you ever have a situation like that where you just you had a car and it just wouldn't work for you? Well, yeah, all of us have cars that don't work sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> We were fortunate this year in that, that most of the parts that we were going to, we, we went to a new engine program this winter, but 
at the PRI show last fall, we were able to purchase most everything we needed to, you know, to get the car ready. And we were ready to go when we got out there. And then, as, as you know, we've been there so many times, and uh, everything is so coordinated. You know, we go through the gears on a car uh, at least two times in the pits with it on jack stand before we ever go to the starting line. But uh, we, we, uh, I had an engine to blow up out there. <laughs> you got to remember that. <laughs> I over-revved it because the computer didn't give me a shift light. <laughs> and Ooh. I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there waiting on a shift light and at 10-5, there, there's a warning light comes on the console that says over RPM. And I'm thinking, I probably need to shift without the shift light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but all of us have those issues and it, it, it's part of racing at Bonneville and it, it's a very small window that we got to work with out there. Like, you know, we're saying that you're out there the last day. We're only out there for one week out of the year, so you don't have a lot of a lot of uh, areas that you can go back and fix and come back and run, and we don't make any practice runs out there. They're all live. So it, it's a very, you know, common thing with all of us, even with, with teams like mine. We, we have issues. <laughs> Um, one afternoon out there, I sat in the car for three hours trying to get the battery and the starter to start that small block. And, you know, it happened to be one of the wiring harnesses that the guy made for us. But we all have those little, little glitches, and that's what makes it worthwhile to go back next year. George, you have so many cars in that uh, collection of yours. Has any one of them that you, for some reason, sold off, got rid of, that you'd want back someday? Uh, say that again so you have a lot of cars in your collection yeah has have you ever sold a car or something happened to a car and you always thought to yourself i want to someday get that car back it's kind of like the one that got away that you want <laughs> that happened to me this year at bonneville <laughs> there was there was a racer out there that came to my pit and one of uh, you had used to own a car that that he had uh, of course I did, and I said, I'm sorry I ever sold it. Do you want to sell it? I bank-wired him the money for it yesterday. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what was it? It was a 57 Pontiac. Hey! Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> it was an AACA first-place car, and I just couldn't make myself you know, hot-rodded, and I, I sold it a Mecham auction about seven, eight years ago. And this little boy that I've known racing out there for uh last 15 years and brought it over there, brought pictures of it. And I guess he saw somewhere on the title somewhere where I used to own it. But I made him an offer, and he emailed me that afternoon and said he decided he'd take that offer. He wouldn't price it to me. <laughs> so I told him what I would give. <laughs> and it didn't take him long to decide he would sell it back to me. Okay, so you have so many cars out there. What is, uh, let's see, on the top five list of cars that George Poteet wants someday, What? give me the top three. What's on the top five cars that I'd like to own today? Yeah, in other words, if you wanted to add cars to your uh, collection, what are the top three to five? Well, I'm looking right now for a uh, Hemi Roadrunner, which I, I don't own. I've owned a couple of Hemi cars before, but in 68 and 69, when I was in high school and college, they were legendary, and I've never owned a Hemi Roadrunner, so I would like to own one of those right now. And... uh 
uh, that's about the only thing that I don't own that I would would like to uh, purchase right now. I, I was able to get one of those new Ford GTs last winter, so <laughs> that that niche was was scratched for me. So, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I actually uh, a Hemi Roadrunner right now is the only thing I I, I would consider you know strongly about buying. Of course, I don't buy anything if it's low mileage and a good car. Uh huh. Absolutely. Well, of, of the hot rods you have, which is your your favorite? Which one would you drive the most if you had the chance? Well, I, I drive a 55 Chevrolet most of the time. It's got an LS engine in it with air conditioning, cruise control, everything on it. So I drive it to and from work quite a bit and run around in it here in town because it, it runs good and cool and it's fairly comfortable. Uh, Mustangs have always been a favorite of mine. I've got a couple of Mustangs I drive quite a bit. And uh, the... Uh, uh, hot rod. I've got a 32 Ford that Dave Lane built for me 20 years ago that that we had a lot of fun with. That I'll, I'll never part with it until I, you know, I'm gone. But uh, 32 Fords have always been some of my favorites. So I've got several of those cars. That 32 Roadster is pretty dear to me. Car and drive. Yeah, Go ahead, Bob. Yeah. Your 36 Ford Roadster you have Grand Nationals is amazing. Do you ever get a chance to just take that out and drive it? I drove it uh, a couple of weeks before the uh, uh, uh We uh, are still taking it around to shows right now. We we have purchased a set of uh, another set of wheels and radial tires and everything for it. And the plans are to drive it on a good guys uh, at West Coast tour they have this year from. From Pleasant back to Dallas, so we we've got everything in place: the wheels, tires, change what we need to change to to make it uh, a driving car. And it is not anything exotic about it. It's a small block Ford with fuel injection and a five-speed transmission. It, it's a very simple car. It just had a lot of body modification done to it, nice detail work done to it, but. Uh, we'll, I'll drive that car this fall when it when the hot weather leaves us. It doesn't have air conditioning on it yet. Yeah. yeah, I think even we know that feeling out here, right, Bob? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not every place in California is uh, looking like Hawaii. I understand that. Okay, so Car and Driver magazine did a story about you, and they called you the Mississippi Mensch. Where, <laughs> yeah. where did that come from? Well, I was born and raised in Mississippi, and uh, I've never been ashamed of that. I, I went to school there and, and started my early life there. But uh, I don't, I don't know where the name came from, other than I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> and you're a nice guy. Yeah, I am kind. <laughs> yeah. Don't know if you're Jewish, but it doesn't really matter. As long as you're a nice guy, you could be Mississippi Mensch. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think I am. I, I probably got people that think I am, but <laughs> I try to be. I, 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 I try to be a, uh, a role model for my children, grandchildren, and, and, and people around here at work. I, I've been working with the same company for 50 years, so I hadn't done a lot wrong there. They would have fired me. <laughs> wow. This kind of racing, the Bonneville kind of racing, what is it about that that got you into it and you still love it so much 
Well, there's you know, the biggest issue out there is a personal challenge, and you know we all have egos. We all want to win, and uh, I've always been competitive from you know high school days through college through uh, uh, growing up in Mississippi. You know we had to be competitive to to survive, but uh, the competitiveness of it, and then over the years you meet some pretty nice people out there. I've got some of the some of my closest friends right now race and uh you know we pit together out there and it's kind of a reunion ever every summer out there but it uh there's some really nice people that that race at Bonneville because we're all racing against ourselves we're really not racing against someone else and uh, the only the only reward you get out there is your name on a trophy <laughs> so it's not uh, anything to be gained or lost out of it, other than uh, you know you have a good time, and that's what I do for a hobby. I don't belong to a country club, don't own a boat, you know, don't have a vacation home or a lake house. That's, I, I do bottle, I do cars. That's what I tell my wife, and then she goes, "Wait a minute, we need a lake house." <laughs> no, she doesn't say that. <laughs> But at least I have a 57 Pontiac, and that's a good thing. So you are a kindred spirit, my friend. Yeah, there are not many 57 Pontiacs all in a row. No, no, that is true. Uh, George, we appreciate the time. We appreciate you coming on with us. All right, well, the last thing I'd like to say is, you know, you guys out there in California have always been our inspiration to to. Uh, survive and to compete with you and it, it's been a lot of fun in, in, in the last 20 years meeting people from out there that you always thought were not very nice people that really turned out to be pretty nice people <laughs> to, to associate with and I've, I've been able to acquire a lot of friends in California and I, I come out there I wouldn't want to live out there but I still come out there and enjoy it wait what <laughs> most, most of you that, that are into cars and racing are really really good people George everybody wants to live in California come on <laughs> yeah yeah okay never mind okay not everybody Salt Flats racing legend George Petit from Memphis. And Hot Rod Bob also with us this week on the Talking About Cars podcast. Hey, thanks for listening, and please share our show on social media. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. That way you'll get an update at the minute a new podcast goes up. Leave a comment, and if you're on iTunes, rate us and review us. Thanks in advance for helping our podcast grow. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget, we're we're also on Radio.com and KNX1070.com. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars. Cars.